0: Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week... I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about sanctification, and I am really thrilled to welcome Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Dr. Pryor is a reader, a writer, and a professor. She is the author of many books, most recently, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. She's contributed to lots of different publications like Christianity Today, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post. She has her PhD uh, from the State University of New York at Buffalo and her undergraduate studies at Damon College in Amherst, New York. Her academic focus is British literature with a specialty in the 18th century. She and her husband live in a hundred-year-old homestead in central Virginia with dogs, chickens, and lots of books. I am really excited to have her on. Karen Swallow Pryor, I have really been looking forward to this conversation. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Amanda. I have too.
0: <laughs> well, I so I have to confess something to you. Um, I have watched your work uh, for a while now, and I always like liked everything you had to say. I was like, oh, I really want to, really want to talk to her. I really want to be friends with her. But I was like, I I don't know, like if we can be friends because I need to tell you that I don't particularly enjoy victorian literature and so i always thought oh can, can we still be friends if i'm not interested in victorian literature <laughs> also i hope my mother-in-law's not listening to this because i don't know if she knows that i don't i don't enjoy victorian literature
1: <laughs> well fortunately there's a lot of other literature and also i do want to say that jane austen is not victorian okay so you know and yes yeah there's yeah so you can well, like a lot of things and not like Victorian literature. What
0: I de- So what I decided is that my on-ramp for my relationship with you, besides your amazing new book that we're going to talk about, is my fascination with Victorian grief rituals, uh, which I learned a lot about for the last book that I wrote. And, and I was like, okay, well, maybe that's something that we we could talk about. But actually, you and I probably have a lot we could talk
1: about. <laughs> I think so. Um,
0: but yeah, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited. As soon as I read uh, your book, The Evangelical Imagination, Right here, I'm gonna hold it up. Even though, I don't know. This isn't a video podcast. This is just audio, <laughs> but I'm holding it up anyway.
1: Well, I, <laughs> I've got me. yours. I'm gonna hold yours up. Oh, too, oh, so. that's so nice. I, the,
0: I love the cover. I love, I love the book. And I, I knew the minute I read it, I had to have you on because. So I wrote a book about what it was like to be evangelical growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, and just, you know, some of the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. And I tried to write a little bit about the history and culture of where some of those expectations came from. But folks, if you're listening, and you resonated with my book, and you want to go deeper into some of those cultural forces, those historical elements that led to those expectations getting into the bloodstream of evangelicalism, you have to go read... Dr. Pryor's book like it is it's academic, but it's super accessible. And it's interesting. I mean, I flew through it. I read it in like three days, which I am another thing I'm a little embarrassed about. I'm a slow reader. So to read a book in three days, like it it, it must have been a good one. So enough from me, you tell (laughs) us I want people to hear from you. What is this book? It is The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Give us the elevator speech. I know we were talking before, and you said the elevator speech <laughs> for this book is hard.
1: <laughs> but what is. is the
0: elevator speech for this book, and what was your kind of mission in writing?
1: Well, it does begin with Victorian literature and mm-hmm. teaching Victorian literature, but it goes, you know, before that, after that, into our current moment. And basically what I do is I take – the concept of the social imaginary from the mm. philosopher Charles Taylor and fear not I explain it all I don't expect my readers to have read Charles Taylor most people haven't it's a slog, uh, and, it's and, a and, slog. You don't, and you don't need to I'm here for you but I take this idea of the social imaginary which is basically our collective pool of stories images metaphors legends myths just our received notions mm. that kind of drive us underneath the surface usually pre- at a precognitive level, like we don't even really know Mm -hmm. um, that this is forming how we think about how life should go. Um, And social imaginaries exist in all cultures and times and places and evangelicals have them too. So I just kind of unpack what I identify as sort of the major stories, images and metaphors um, that have shaped evangelicalism for its 300 year history and got Mm -hmm. us to where we are now. Yeah. 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 So, I
0: mean, I think most people tend to think of evangelicalism as a set of beliefs, right, Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. theological systems. But you talk about, yeah, this evangelicalism in terms of imagination or the imaginary stories, myths, legend. Tell us a little bit more about this. Like, what is the difference maybe uh, between knowledge and imagination?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And of course, even, you know, most people will say that evangelicalism isn't isn't evangelicalism isn't really a set of doctrines Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of its strength and weakness because Mm -hmm. it transcends denominations and it's really like more of a posture or an Mm -hmm. attitude toward the Bible and Mm -hmm. toward the role of, conversion um and several things that i you know i lay that out in the beginning because i know that's a really contested term so well yeah i mean who knows what evangelicalism yeah what does it even mean to be evangelical anymore right right exactly but nevertheless we do have this 300 year history that Mm. you know and and we have we're a people who has been we've inherited postures attitudes practices beliefs that we don't know perhaps that other forms of Christianity don't practice or don't mm-hmm. believe and we might not ever question them. I was just, you know, I know we're going to talk about this more, but a great example is just the way that we you know, in conservative evangelical churches conduct altar calls or something, you know, like I just had a friend who read my book and she went to her church and they had the altar call as they usually do. And she just said she just looked at it completely differently. Thinking about how you know Paul didn't Do that churches around the world Don't necessarily do that and it's not that it's Wrong or bad or good I mean you know, we could talk about that, but just that it's something we take for granted mm-hmm. and never even question or think that, you know, why why do we do it? Should we do it? And so forth. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole set of those, a whole book full of them um, and a lot <laughs> I didn't write about that yeah. are just, you know, they're in our imagination mm-hmm. um, yet we might not sit down and think about them and critique them and analyze them or learn their history or, or weigh um, the good and the bad. So yeah. that, that's kind of how the imagination works. Yes, yeah, yeah. so that like mental
0: and emotional scaffolding that we mm. kind of don't even don't even know is there so so whenever I interview guests on my podcast you know I have a list of questions I want to ask and I have like literally in all caps at the top of my page question for you why am I the way I am Karen Swaller Pryor yes. <laughs> why am I the way I am. You are referred to as the notorious KSP for a reason. Surely you can answer, answer this question. Help me figure this out. But I mean, I think, yeah, some, some of the questions I kind of sought to answer with, with my book is why do I think my faith is faltering when I don't feel emotionally connected to Jesus? Or why did I spend so much of my childhood wondering if I was actually a Christian? Because I couldn't remember a clear moment of conversion. <laughs> Or why, uh, when I'm leading worship on a Sunday morning, do I feel like I've failed people when they're not raising their hands and have tears in their eyes? Like, where did some of these expectations of what faith should look like come from? So you talk a lot about this in your chapter on uh, sentimentalism. So could, could you maybe define sentimentalism, tell us a little bit about the role it plays in our spiritual formation, particularly within evangelicalism?
1: Yeah, that was actually a favorite chapter. I knew I was that was an er, one of the earliest chapters yeah. that I wrote. Um, and by the way, when you just describe, you know, asked why are you the way you are, I'm like, it's like we, you, it's like it's like you and I read each other's. Manuscripts before we wrote and published our book. I didn't. know. We did. I As know. And I, I we have, know we didn't. <laughs> let
0: me tell you the gentle weeping I have done at night that I did <laughs> not have your book in my hands when I was writing my book because it would have filled in so many gaps. But nevertheless, they can be fun Here. companions to one another.
1: Here we are, yeah. yeah. So, sentimentalism or sentimentality is, you know, it's kind of a passion of mine because I do teach literature mm-hmm. and, um, do, I do teach Victorian literature a lot mm-hmm. and Victorian literature is known for its sentimentality. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Evangelicals are known for their sentimentality, especially with art and literature. Yeah. And so this is something that I talk about in my classes a lot because I do teach you know, literature and I teach aesthetics and poetics. And those are questions about what constitutes good or great art and literature. Um, and evangelicals often don't even ask that question. Like we're yeah. not even asking, is our art good? Now, you're an artist, you're a musician. I have heard you <laughs> at least once and I know you are good. So I know you're you. asking you. that question. I'm
0: trying to ask that question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and answering it. Thank you. Um, yes. And so, there. you know, it's as I say in the beginning of that chapter, like the whole j- joke about or the cliche about bad Christian art Mm -hmm. today is it's it's there's so much true it even the joke is a cliche right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. um and 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 there are lots of reasons why you know um Contemporary evangelical art is bad. And I don't get into all of them. But I do spend a whole chapter talking about how one quality that really is prevalent is sentimentality. Mm -hmm. And sentimentality is just, you know, indulging in sentimentality is just emotion and emotion is wonderful. It's good. I am not the last I am the last person on earth. To say that any kind of emotion is a sin, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, we are just emotional creatures, but when we indulge in emotion, emotion for emotion's sake, just mm-hmm. to feel the the particular feeling, um, and to abandon or de-emphasize other aspects of our being, um, you know, whether that's the rational thinking or ethical character, all of those things, then we slip into sentimentality. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's sort of the overarching vice of evangelical Christian art, um, but it's also an overarching vice of our culture at large mm-hmm. it's not just evangelicals it's, it's yes. you know it's hallmark television it's budweiser <sighs> beer commercials it's, yeah. it's all of it right yes. anything that they yeah. can jerk a little tear out of our eye or make us weepy um yeah you know it will sell something and so um I, yeah that's really kind of what i'm talking about in that chapter and i go into lots of different examples yeah
0: G- give us for, for those who are listening who need like the victorian era 101
1: mm, mm. Let,
0: let let's hear because I, I actually that's mm. that's why I ended up studying so much about that era because of the sentimentalism mm. that's where so many grief rituals kind of mm. came to be as this middle class was being formed and performing your grief in a very sentimental emotive um, uh, performative way mm. was almost a way of saying that you were part of the upper upper echelon of society mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I did a lot of study on... Um there was a book I read called The Grief in the Victorian Family where it talked about the kind of the the sentimental death, these the popularization of these stories of people dying and how they were beautifully brought into the arms of Jesus and angels appeared on the wall and it was just this very sentimental version of what death could look like. And if you read letters, actual letters from the time you find out, that's actually not how people died. This was kind of a sentimental version of death. <laughs> in fact, but this was all very popular within that era. So yes, give us Victorianism 101. What was the time period? What mm. was going on? What was, what was in the water at that time?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And some of what you were describing there, I'm like, oh, wait, are we talking about Twitter? I'm going to perform, the performativity and all right? That, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. um, no, no, no. Victorian era. Right. So and and let me make a connection here. Um, so even though my book sort of centers on the Victorian age, that, it, you know, it was really the century before when yes. evangelicalism developed and arose, but it gained its greatest influence in the Victorian age. So when yes. we look at the Victorian age, which is, you know, most of the 19th century, um, we are looking at a culture that has, you know, has has generated a good deal of wealth because mm-hmm. of the Industrial Revolution. Um, the, England was the was the world's empire it was said the sun never set on the British empire mm-hmm. so there was a rising middle class there was um material wealth that had been sort of unprecedented and so men were able to work outside the home and make enough money so that the women could stay inside mm-hmm. the home and be the angels of the house and mm-hmm. um and so there there sounds so familiar <laughs> i know right <laughs> <That's how> that <laughs>
0: cult of domesticity i wrote about a little bit in my book and you really unpack that in yours as well yeah. this like feminine- an ideal as right. woman was the homemaker, which was which was really only something that people within that middle class privileged society could achieve, but it kind of became this social ideal, right?
1: Exactly. It, 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 it's social imaginary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, the, you know, it was a time when there was almost an ability to luxuriate in or indulge the emotions yeah. right because because there was this you know there was material prosperity now there but there was also enough bad going on as there is such as orphans and poor children being exploited and 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 female workers being exploited and so this is where you know Charles Dickens enters mm-hmm. with his I I adore Charles Dickens please don't <laughs> get me I I love he's one of my favorite novelists yeah. but he is a lot of his success um, came be- through his sentimentalism, mm-hmm. um, and so this is why you know this is this is a good topic. I, I try to be nuanced in my treatment of all the topics I cover in my book because you know I'm I'm sort of dissing on sentimentalism, but at the same time you take someone like Dickens. and his novels can be faulted for being overly sentimental or for Mm -hmm. being overly long or both or whatever. Um, But he actually affected real world change, Mm -hmm. because he was able to arouse people's emotions and sympathy and empathy for orphans, for poor people, for animals, um, for Mm -hmm. women, for widows, um, for everyone who needed it. And so that people would begin to see the real suffering around them. And because they're because dickens helped them to feel that um, emotion and see it around them then they wanted to to affect more change um and so there is a direct connection between sentimentalism and um emotion and then real world change but if it gets too distorted or it's not truthful enough, hmm. it can it can bring about change that's, you know, that it's loaded or has a uh, a dark side to it as well. And that in the book I talk, I use Uncle Tom's Cabin mm, yeah. as an example of that, um, yeah. which did did change people's hearts and minds in America about slavery, But it also, it did that using racist tropes and stereotypes that still do damage today. Yes. So it's just, it's so complicated. Yes. And again, that's just why I feel like your work is so important. Another
0: thing I love that you did is you're, you're, you're right. You articulate very well that evangelicalism kind of came of age and gained traction in the Victorian era, but you talk about some of its roots. And I know I didn't send this question to you in advance, but I would just love to hear from you. What I loved about your book is that it reminded me of some of the good and the beauty that is at at the the center of the founding of evangelicalism right now. I feel like that word is almost a dirty word and we're all kind of wondering if we should call ourselves that and are we the bad guys and what what happened what led us to this point but you talk a little bit about the beginnings in a way that made me think okay it might not be time to throw this out entirely so tell us a little bit about some of the the good and the beauty with the wesley brothers and and the 1700s (laughs) what was going on that led to this this formation of this movement called evangelicalism
1: yeah, I mean, there there is good. Whether it's all redeemable, I don't know. Everyone yeah. asks that question, and I, you know, I still consider myself evangelical because I, you know, I believe in the four characteristics defined by bebington as part of evangelicalism you know ah. uh, so um but you know so so i i understand the problems and the roots and mm. um and the limitations but its beginnings really were very different from mm-hmm. i think from what we see today um and you know it began in the early 18th century with the wesleys were really mm. some of the the main leaders and uh, along with George Whitfield and but my period of study which I don't really talk about in the book is I discovered what evangelicalism was and that I was an evangelical Mm -hmm. when I was doing my doctoral dissertation on Hannah Moore Mm -hmm. who was an 18th century poet and reformer and abolitionist and she wrote all of these works that you know are you know long forgotten today but she she helped to end slavery with the other evangelical abolitionists and they were real reformers they brought about so many reforms for education um for the poor they asked the rich to you know who called themselves christians to live like christians um these are the roots of evangelicalism that Mm. i that i feel feel like i was you know claiming or and want to claim as i continue to be one um but yeah because evangelicalism is also sort of a modern movement Mm. It also is, it has all the trappings and the downsides of modernity, yes. that emphasis on individualism, the materialism, mm-hmm. and when we add, you know, American culture and politics into the mix, it's like all of the good things that, you know, kind of came to a fork in the road, mm-hmm. took the wrong took the wrong turn. Yeah. Caitlin Beatty, I, I
0: read this in my, a couple podcasts ago. Caitlin Beatty recently quoted Ross Douthat who said, you know, evangelicalism or Christianity is often a target because it asks to be a target. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes evangelicalism or Christianity gets kind of um, chastised for these features, but these features are not unique to evangelicalism. Right, it, it, right. It's, it's mirroring the broader culture, but yes. in some ways it's like that is kind of our beautiful burden to bear as we're trying Mm -hmm. to hold ourselves up as examples. And so therefore we're going to take heat when we don't live up to the name by -hmm. which we, 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 we claim to be founded upon the name of of Christ. And, and maybe that's not a problem, but I, I, you know, maybe that's a good thing in many ways, Mm -hmm. but I think it is really important to recognize that so many of the things, whether that's celebrityism or consumerism that we see in Christianity, that this mm-hmm. is part of a much broader cultural problem right. beyond right. just what's happening um, in Christianity, American Christianity, <laughs> evangelicalism. Um, so I brought, this podcast is entitled Sanctification. It is, it mm-hmm. is. I really want to talk a little bit about this concept of sanctification that I, I wrote about uh, in my book. Um, but y- you talk, you have a whole chapter on uh, s- self-improvement, basically, <laughs> mm-hmm. and how that is part of this evangelical imaginary. So uh, in in your mind, how have Christians maybe conflated sanctification mm. with self-improvement or dare I say self-help? <laughs> how do you see the two as being different?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, because evangelicalism arose in the modern period, and the modern period was one in which people began to actually be able to improve mm-hmm. and to change their lot in life, which, by the way, I'm really in favor of improving, um, yes. and, you know, and improving my lot in life. I'm so glad we have choices, you know, to make and and we can make movement in, you know, in our social lives and our relational lives in ways that people who lived for thousands of years, yeah. never even dreamed of doing, yes. right? And so... This idea of improvement is very modern. Evangelicalism is modern. Um, and really, the the rise of the individual and the, the literary context around that, which is the novel, my area of expertise, all of these, th- which led to romanticism all, mm-hmm. and all the things that form our culture, really evangelicals played an important role mm-hmm. because evangelicals said that. Every individual soul is important and every mm-hmm. individual soul needs to be born again. And every individual soul sanctification and growth and maturity is matters. And, mm-hmm. and we can help one another do that. Yes. So that's all beautiful and good. But then all of a sudden, again, we get to like the 19th century and the 20th century with the Industrial Revolution and mass, uh, you know, uh, Production mm-hmm. um, and the publishing industry. I mean, you know. I mean, you and I both love the publishing industry. I know yes, that it, um, pays it pays our bills sometimes. Right, right. And but yet, yeah, the convergence of all of these things to an access creates a culture in which we can mistake true genuine sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit for the whatever we can get through you know the latest TikTok series or the self-help book or the conference or whatever and all those things are good we we, you know you and I participate in some of those things um get our you know bills paid through them but when we mistake those kinds of programs and uh, conferences Mm -hmm. and offerings for um the only the only kind of saying you know improvement that can come through sanctification then that's that's where things go off track
0: right right this yeah yeah. i think it was hannah anderson a a few weeks ago on the podcast said it's this feature of modernity is like always getting better always improving always moving upward and so then for me in my walk with the lord when i felt like i was I, I was plagued by besetting mm. sins. I'll use some a little bit outdated language there maybe, but like <laughs> I, I felt like my faith faltered sometimes mm. or I would have moments of certainty and then moments of doubt. And it wasn't this clear, straight upward line. I began mm. to think that my process of sanctification was failing or that, that there was right. something Wrong with me because i i i wasn 't always improving or felt like i wasn 't getting holier and holier and holier you know
1: no that that 's such a great example of a social imaginary mm-hmm. because it 's an underlying assumption that we 've inherited that we have to always be on the upward slope yeah. where something is wrong and if we if that's our assumption then then we feel like something's wrong when maybe nothing is wrong yeah there was a, there was a meme that went around and i i referenced this i think i think it was in a, a newsletter or something and, and it, it wasn't a christian meme. somehow maybe i just made it and it was something um so i made it my own so i think i'm going to give what i remember is that if like for example what you're talking about is often described as backsliding right mm-hmm. like the failure to go upward yeah or to step back could be backsliding. Nah. But this meme was saying, in uh, you know, a different kind of imagination, we can call one step forward and one step back the cha-cha. <laughs> right? <laughs> Right. Like, the, like imagine right. it, imagine if we thought of the sort of front back, you know, like, oh, one step forward <laughs> as, as a cha-cha. Like, it's just a dance.
0: But I don't want the cha-cha. I want the forward <laughs> sprint, the marathon moving forward to the finish line. Clear progress.
1: <laughs> that's that's what evangelicals have been raised to, to yeah. think, right? Um, and to feel, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's um, now I'm going to think of the cha-cha. Anytime <laughs> I have a moment of doubt, I um, will do a little dance. Um, yeah, you know, one thing I loved when you got into your book, um, towards the end, you, you kind of, uh, you referenced the phrase, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And as soon as I read that, I started like smacking my, we were riding the car. I was like smacking my husband. I'm like, she talks about this phrase too, because I have such mixed feelings about mm. it. What, what, what are your thoughts on that phrase? Is it helpful? Is it harmful? Is it mm. misleading?
1: Well, you know, I, I read that part in your book, and and I so like spoiler alert, I, I agree with you. Um, okay. we are of one mind. Okay, we are of one mind. It's so interesting. I tried to locate this on the internet, and I couldn't find it in my quick search. But I actually wrote something maybe ten or fifteen years ago mm. um, when I got an email from a student who asked me if Christianity is a is a religion because he'd been hearing, and no, it's not a relationship. And I said, and I said. Yes, it is a religion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. It's it, What you say, it's both. It's yeah. both, right? And yeah. so, of course, Christianity is a religion, just like, you know, Hinduism is a religion and then Buddhism is a religion or, you know, Christianity is a religion. But what I thought was so interesting and connected to some other things you said in your book, and I'm gonna, just going to be a little bit of a professor nerd right now. Ooh, um, I love it. That's why but, I invited you on. Because I don't think you said, I don't think you said this, but you said it somewhere else about something else. All right. Um, is that the the root word for the word religion mm. is the same root for the word like ligament. Mm. Religion literally means a binding together. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's, it's, that's literally what it means. It means bound together, binding together. And so we are bound together yeah. as Christians in Christ. And yet we do have an individual relationship with Christ yeah. too. So it's not either or, it's both and Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think my discomfort with the phrase is that like if it's
0: if it is a relationship then what what happens to me, what happens to my faith when that kind of mm-hmm. ease of relationship isn't there? Like I I, I think in some ways we've we've and then and then Christianity just becomes my own interpretation or experience of it and i think it is really important to remind people that there are a set of creeds associated with this this religion that there is a history there are a great cloud of witnesses of people that have gone before you whose wisdom you might want to draw from i, I think that's why people my generation are more and more being drawn to the liturgical churches because they suddenly feel rooted in something deeper than themselves. You know, we grew up in the 90s and the 2000s where it was like literally worship leaders were saying, well, just draw a circle around yourself and pretend it's just you and God while you're here at this church service. And it's like, I get that we're trying to achieve that intimacy. But like what that makes me feel like is as soon as that intimacy is gone, then the faith is gone too. Right. And I want to know there's something I'm part of something bigger than myself. And I, I just don't know that we were reminded of that often enough when I was when I was growing up in the nineties, you know?
1: Right. No, yeah. I mean, what well, you're, you're showing, you know, you live through the excess of that idea mm-hmm. and virtue is always in the moderation between the two competing mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. It's always the
0: excess of ideas that mm-hmm. get us, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that we can all have an individual relationship with God, that's great news. But when it's individualism mm-hmm. at excess is, mm-hmm. is where we right. run into problems. Exactly. You, you also end your book similarly to me, <laughs> I'm just gonna keep saying great minds think alike. I don't yeah, know. I think yeah. you you definitely have a great mind. I aspire <laughs> to a great mind. But you you said that um, you talk a lot about Jesus being the way at the mm-hmm. end of your book and mm-hmm. the importance of that of that image. Mm-hmm. Why, why was that important for you to end your book that way? Mm-hmm.
1: You know, uh, I was trying to think about that because that part of the book definitely came through the process of writing. Mm. Um, And I actually originally intended to end the book with the two last chapters reversed. I Mm. I originally intended to have reformation and the idea of of a new reformation as the last chapter because that just kind of made sense. Um, But but I ended up having the last chapter be the rapture chapter, Mm -hmm. which is (laughs) kind of fun. Um, Can I just quickly,
0: (laughs) I need to quickly say that growing up, I had a t-shirt that said in the event of the rapture, you can have this shirt. (laughs) <laughs> I would give anything to know where that t-shirt is right now.
1: <laughs> but, wow. Yeah, anyway. no, that, that's a, I, that's a great little uh, cultural, cultural art- artifact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's so, so many, so many rapture stories and artifacts. Yeah. So you were going to um,
0: flip the order there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I realized as I was writing the rapture chapter, um, and really thinking, and again, I I don't take a position on on what the rapture is. But spoiler alert, because I really don't care that much. <laughs> um, sorry, that may be a sin, but I, but I do care that it definitely means that we are to be as believers caught up in mm. Christ, right? Mm. Caught yeah. up in Him, and so I was writing that part of the book, and I realized this is how I want to end the book, yeah. and so. Um, you know, I had put a a lot of the things about Jesus being the way in the Reformation chapter, thinking that would be the the end of the book. Mm -hmm. But I realized that those two things are just just tied together. I mean, Jesus is the way. Yes. In every single way way that that word can mean something Mm -hmm. physical, literal, figurative, symbolic, spiritual, all of those things. Um, And that, and, and the other thing, you know, from writing books that you know, our editors and publishers are always asking us like the so what, so what? So yeah. yeah I, I didn't yeah. I didn't I didn't really have a so what or a solution for this crisis that I was seeing. And I'm like, mm. I'm just not that original. The only solution I know is Jesus mm. um, yeah. He is the way. And I, I just feel like especially in the process of writing the book and I just feel feel like a lot of this good stuff has gotten us bogged down Mm. a little bit and the cultural aspect we've we've let the culture overtake christ yeah um and we can never escape culture i love culture i'm all about cultural engagement and i love the art and all i love all the stuff i love gummy bears and and (laughs) you know all of it i'm so glad to be alive today and in this place but you know Christ is all, and and we cannot let Him get lost in the cultural stuff. Mm. Oh, that's so good. Uh,
0: yeah, I think for me it was that I needed to realize my faith was just not a way of feeling. It's it's a way mm-hmm. of being. It's a way mm. of doing. A way of walking. And that we we place so much emphasis in, on feelings in our culture. And again, I, I'm not I'm not saying they don't matter or they can't be formative or, or they, I- informative. But faith is more than a feeling. It's a way of being, a way of walking the, the way of Jesus. Well, this is this is my final question I ask all my guests is, um, as you have grown in your walk with the Lord and your journey of faith, how has your perception or understanding of happiness and abundance or prosperity or blessing, how has it changed? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, it really has cha- changed in the sense that um, even like for me personally, what's been a period of loss and transition mm-hmm. and disorientation, I, I just feel the Lord drawing so much nearer to me um, mm-hmm. and me clinging more tightly to him that it does really bring to life, um, you know, the Beatitudes, which I know, you know, you talk about in your book, like they like the to be you know, that Jesus can meet us in our grief and our loss and our, our poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we find him, we've truly are blessed. Mm-hmm. And I always knew that as a Christian in my head mm-hmm. and in, you know, my words, but I just, I, I feel it more now than I ever have. And that's like a good use of the word feeling that we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah. I think. yeah. Yeah.
0: It's different when, when you live it.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly.
0: Well, I guess I, I do have one more question in the event of the rapture and I am left behind. May I have your shirt? Because <laughs> so I just have to say, you, you, I aspire to uh, Karen Swallow Pryor's uh, style sensibilities. Oh. Um well. there, There's so much I admire about you. The way you dress is simply one of them, but.
1: oh well you know i'm i'm working at home i hardly go anywhere so i've got a whole day of podcasts and zoom meetings and webinars and i'm like okay i'm gonna put on a nice shirt so (laughs) lucky you yeah yeah well
0: thank you again thank you so much for your book i hope everyone listening goes out and gets it and reads it and enjoys it as much as i did but thank you for your work in the world and thanks for being a guest on the podcast thanks amanda in the myth of certainty One of my all-time favorite books. Daniel Taylor writes, Normally, doubt is seen as sapping faith's strength. Why not the reverse? Where there is doubt, faith has its reason for being. Do I doubt when I look at the pain in the world? Fine. This gives tested faith, not blind, wishful thinking, a place to operate. Doubt makes its claims even daily, and they are respected. But they do not determine the character of my life. Thank you for joining us today.